You're listening to Software Unscripted. I'm your host, Richard Feldman. On today's episode, I'm joined by Hillel Wayne, author of a book about formal methods that shall not be named until later in the episode to preserve an air of mystery. We also talk about software history, empirical programming, incentives, and clickbait. So buckle up. Software Unscripted is sponsored by my employer, No Red Ink. Nerva Inc. makes software for English teachers, and we're on a mission to help all students harness the power of the written word. Ideally, not for clickbait. We're also hiring, so the next time you're thinking about a change, take a look at noredinc.com slash jobs. And now, clickbait! So, I'm here with Hillel Wayne. Hillel, thanks so much for coming on the show. Do you want to introduce yourself real quick? Hi, I'm Hillel. I'm a juggler and chocolatier. I'm also an avid writer, and I'm trying to be getting into um, rock climbing and also do some software stuff. Mostly this thing called formal methods, but also in general, like, exotic technology and, to some extent, software research and journalism. Nice. I wear many hats, which is good because I don't have hair. <laughs> so formal methods. I'm guessing some people have heard of that, but others haven't. Do you want to just elaborate on that a little bit, what that means? Yeah. So it's basically this technology that, like, does some stuff. And the main thing that's been like really focused on right now is that one of the technologies I work with, which I'm not going to mention, let's see if I can go the entire time without mentioning it. Cool. I'm basically working in 2017, I wrote a guide to it, and I'm now in the process of updating it because I'm now much more experienced with the stuff. And it's actually kind of interesting because writing educational material is a lot of my job. And I've been thinking a lot about how to do that better. Okay. So better in what ways? So I've got this like chip on my shoulder about Markdown. I wrote my original like educational material in Markdown because that's what everybody does. And I found that actually it's really, really bad for large-scale technical writing. And the reason why is because it it basically is a notation for syntax. If you have two stars, that means italicized. If you have two stars, it means bold, etc. But often what you want when writing really like intense, densely meshed material is semantic markup. So you want to be able to say, this is a tip, this is a note, this is like an exercise, this is an example. And the reason why you want that is because often you, as you're writing like a really dense thing, you need to have a lot of cross-references. You need to sort of think about meta tools that can help people learn better. And being able to sort of do this kind of semantic markup is a really big difference. I can give you one example of that. Sure. So I'm basically writing this language called Restructured Text, Sphinx. It's much, much less popular than like a markdown for many reasons. But it comes with this thing called Sphinx, which is this really, really powerful documentation builder. And... Among other things, it also has extension points. You can define new semantic objects as part of your text. So one of the things I can very easily do is basically mark out error checking as a thing. So if you are basically following along with the guide, often there's going to be some information that you need to sort of see if you've gotten the code transferred over correctly, right? Mm-hmm. And with the technology I work with, that's actually really hard because of how it works. I'm not going into any details. So what I have to do is instead share, if you run this correctly, you'll get this number of state space and this amount of distinct states. But now what I can do is I can say, okay, so that's clearly like a semantic bit of information, the error check for this example code. So I can now define that as a new type of data in the system. And then I can say like, whenever you see, say, colon SS colon name, you should look up that name in my data file of all of the like error outputs. And then just insert the text instead of basically putting in that string put in, say, you should see this many states, this many distinct Mm-hmm. Now, because it's a total documentation builder, I can also do a couple of other things. I can have, say, the first time that appears on every page, I can have that have a tooltip saying, if this is the first time you're seeing this, this is how you should read this. And I can also have, as I'm sort of like collecting all this, I can say, at the end, the documentation can build me, here are the 
error checks you have not used yet that you have implemented but haven't actually been in any files. So that way I can sort of much more easily keep track of like what work needs to be done. Right. So you can apply changes to, among other things, you can apply changes to all of this, like this entire category of call out or piece of information in the text without having to find and replace. So like go through and manually make all these changes, stuff like that. Exactly. I don't manually make the changes. And also like I can get a lot more assurance that if I change things, I can make sure that everything stays in sync. Right. That makes a lot of sense. And then I can even have like a list of all the error checks. Although for error checks, it's not as important, but for say like troubleshooting or like tips, I can have all the um, documentation builders look at all the tips throughout the entire documentation and put them all in one place for a person to read if they want. Yeah, I wish I had something like that. When I wrote Element Action for Manning, one of the early docs they sent me was like, hey, we you want you to use Microsoft Word as the format for this. So, Oh, God, I'm so sorry. I had to write Project <laughs> Plus. Oh, I named, I mentioned it. Um, I, I, had to, I had to like um, write my book in um, Word 2, and it was just agony. Yeah, because I know exactly what you mean. I mean, anytime I needed to make a change in one place that had effects on other places, I had to go back and, and just redo them all by hand. And, and in some cases, granted, some cases it wasn't, that semantics would have helped because in some cases it was just the way that I was teaching it was affected. And so it's like, well, I need to go change what I'm saying here because I need to say something different because you haven't learned that concept anymore because I moved yeah. it somewhere else, something like that. But it sounds like it would be really helpful for a lot of stuff. Yeah. One actual thing that comes with Sphinx is a C also. So you can basically have a C also object that basically says C also X, Y, and Z. And because the entire document is compiled as like a single distinct entity, it knows all the references to every other part of the document. So you can basically be like, oh yeah, we have to move this part to this part for like better thing. But you can also say, see also this, or if you forget this bit that we talked about a, a long time ago, but like only becomes important again now, here's a backlink to that thing. And you can just put the backlink and it'll automatically keep track across the entire document. Nice. Yeah. yeah that's awesome. So how did you find out about that tool? How did I find out about that tool? I thought it was using Python, isn't it? Yeah, that's probably it. So learning shorthand so I can write stuff faster because I was too lazy to write the full words out kind of thing. So does this get into like auto hotkey, which I know you're a big fan of? Yeah. Anyway, time get back really quickly to like the education stuff. I did a lot of writing Markdown and I just hated how much I had to go back and like manually go over stuff to make sure it was all correct or like figure out how to like inject things like note or content warnings and stuff. And I just couldn't really automate anything because Markdown's not designed for that. So I was researching alternate technologies and for I was thinking of LaTeX because... First rule of LaTeX is that LaTeX can do something. It's terrible. Everything else is worse. <laughs> but LaTeX, unfortunately, cannot do... It's just for typesetting. It's not for actual, like, semantic information processing. And sort of doing more research led me to Sphinx and restructured text. Cool. Yeah, I have not used it for anything, but now I want to for something. I don't know what, though. Yeah, it's really, really cool and really powerful. I actually also have used it for, like, when I run workshops, I use it to, like store all the workshop notes and stuff because you can, again, all the technology becomes really valuable there for like, say, making sure that every exercise has a hint and a solution. And if I miss any, it can basically say, hey, do you want to add a hint to this kind of problem? Things like that. But the problem with it is that nobody uses it because um, it's not Markdown. And there's like other issues with it too. It's definitely like has a much higher like skill threshold than like Markdown. So like, and for most people, like Markdown's fine. But like, because I do a lot of my work on like Project Solo and I'm like in control of the entire tech stack, I like to use like exotic technologies that I know will help me with like a lot of investment. So that's led me to use Sphinx very heavily. Well, I only ever use mainstream technology, so I wouldn't know anything about that. Oh, <laughs> it's good to know that almost finally mainstream. <laughs> For sure. <laughs> you know, we joked about this recently. Elm, the programming language, appeared in a New York Times crossword puzzle answer. 
the hint was like programming language named after a tree or something like that. And Elm was the answer. Oh, and that's, <laughs> but yeah, it, it was, the joke was like, I guess if we're in a New York times crossword puzzle, that must mean we're mainstream, right? Oh yeah. <laughs> you do know the story of Oak, right? The tree or the programming language? The programming language. I'm sure there are multiple languages named Oak, but what? So the original language that's supposed to be named Oak was in the 1990s. It was basically the name for like this major like language that helped revolutionize software. And then the lawyers came back and said, like, actually, there's a technology company already called Oak Technology, so we can't use Oak as our name. So they basically just had a brainstorming session where they just looked around and looked at every single thing in the office to figure out if any of them would be a better name. And they eventually just settled on like, oh, yeah, where are the coffee beans from? Java. Okay, let's just call it Java. Huh. Oh, that sounds familiar, actually. I can send you sources for this if you want. This is a real story. If I remember right, the way they started out with Oak was actually Gosling looking out his window and there was an Oak tree outside the window. Yeah. Yeah, I remember this now. I forgot that the the word was Oak. I just remember the tree part of it. Yeah, that's funny. (laughs) The story of how Elm got its name was, I mean, there's a couple of different reasons, but part of it was that one of the things Evan liked about naming a programming language after a tree is that they're just very unobjectionable. Like nobody's mad about trees. Yeah. How could you name your language after a tree, you know, which I guess like, I don't know, what's a concern for other, I guess like Ruby, maybe the way that Rubies are mined is probably not great just because the way a lot of stuff's mined is not great. A lot of people don't like Python because they don't like snakes. Oh, sure. Yeah. And then one of the big problems with say APL family languages, J and K, you cannot search them online because like you can't search the lighter J. (laughs) By far, the funniest of these has to be Go because it came out of Google. How could you not think about the searching problem there? I mean, of all companies to, for a language to come out with, it's ungoogleable. I mean, it's easy. You just call it Golang, except that if you call it Golang, everybody gets mad at you. <laughs> Can we call it TLA Plus now? Because the cat's out of the Fine. bag. Fine. <laughs> Fine. Okay, so TLA Plus training is what you do professionally. But you mentioned a couple of other things that you're into, such as chocolate making and rock climbing and sort of software journalism. So I actually think that in the past year, this might be the thing that you're most known for, is your your exploration of the question, are we engineers or are we not engineers as software developers or, or programmers or whatever you want to call us? Do you want to just like, I don't know, give a quick overview for those who aren't familiar with it, what the project was? Sure. So are we engineers in software? There's actually a few different stories that I give for this. As you know, I tend to be like really, really into doing research on stuff. Just like in principle, I like researching things. I joke to my friends sometimes that like a good way to describe me is that I always need to be right about everything, <laughs> which sounds like it's going to be nasty. You'll see like, oh yeah, like, oh, I'll just spend that 10 hours doing research on that to figure out what the right answer is kind of thing. Let me interrupt you there. So I would characterize that a little bit differently as like, it sounds more like you want to be more confident that you're not wrong. Oh, no, the point of saying I need to always read about it is to find something is like say it in a way that's accurate and totally misleading. <laughs> okay, okay. <laughs> All right, please continue. <laughs> I love these things a lot, as you can probably tell from my Twitter. I love like really, really bizarre jokes like that. <laughs> and I am also extremely online. I spend way too much time on Twitter and like Hacker News and like Lobsters and stuff. And one of the things that I saw in a lot of cases was people arguing about like software engineering, where some people would be like, oh, yeah, it's not engineering because they're not licensed. And like... Or other people saying like, oh, it's totally engineering because you're working really hard on problems that are really complicated and that's what engineers do. And I started noticing more and more that people would like make analogies to like other fields that really didn't make any sense. Like, oh, British people don't have to worry about gravity changing on them. Or like, 
architects just like design the thing once and then it's done and they don't have to worry about like changing it as they go. And part of me is going, none of those really sound that right. I feel like you're really <laughs> oversimplifying the field. And it sort of occurred to me that like almost everybody who talks about like engineering, they don't have any firsthand experience in what they consider engineering. Yeah. And then I'm like, okay, so maybe I should be talking to people who are engineers to sort of figure out like whether these things are true or not. And that has its own problem, which is most engineers don't know anything about software development at all. You know that famous CSI clip where like two people are typing on a computer to stop the hacker from hacking into the database? (laughs) (laughs) Basically, most people's knowledge of software is basically that. So if I wanted to actually get like a really solid sense of like how engineering differs from software, I need somebody who understands both. And that has its own problem because like most people you find who are like, yeah, I was an engineer and I'm a software and it's nothing like engineering. When you actually dig into them, they're like, what kind of engineering do you do? And they're like, oh yeah, I um, got my degree in electrical engineering. And they're like, so how long have you worked there? And they're like, I've not worked at all in electrical engineering. And now imagine somebody talking about like what software development is without having ever worked as a software developer because they took CS right. classes. <laughs> yeah, it's all about ON performance and algorithms. Git, what's Git? <laughs> so I figured, okay, so then I raised this out. Like the only way to actually like, figure out in a way that makes me confident about like the differences between these fields is talking to people who have worked professionally as both engineers and software developers. So I ended up basically just contacting a bunch of people I knew and had them like find people and then like put out a general posting online to see if I could track people like on Twitter and stuff. And I ended up meeting 17 people who used to be traditional engineers and then became software engineers. And I ended up interviewing them all on like what's similar and different about the fields. And then I wrote a um, series of three essays on my website that I put up in 2021. Gotcha. Okay. So I don't know if you want to spoil the outcome of the, <laughs> the essays or maybe we should just... That's no, fine. Basically, I can just summarize the three key points. Yes, software development is a branch of engineering. Not all software developers are engineers. In fact, I'd say most aren't. But, and this is a key difference between like traditional engineering and software engineering, it is much easier to move between non-engineering work and engineering work. They're much closer than, say, electricianship and electrical engineering are. Hmm. Yeah. Two, almost everything that we think makes software unique and special is not true at all. Everybody uses Agile. Everybody hates Waterfall. Everybody deals with all sorts of like crazy complications that happen all the time. Nobody knows what they're doing. Never cross a bridge. Never go into a mine. Never get in a car. <laughs> everything is constantly breaking all the time. We just don't notice because of the immense amount of work that goes into like making everything look like it's kind of fine. There are yeah. some differences with software. The main one being that we can iterate much faster, which is why like fields of engineering often really like to sort of lean on software as much as they can to do simulations and like fix issues with engineering. And also, like, we don't have to deal with physical constraints, which is a really, really big deal. Sure. Yeah, that totally makes sense. But overall, while we are different in a lot of ways, every field of engineering is different from every other field in different ways. So that doesn't make us special, it just makes us different. And then the last essay was about what we can sort of teach and learn from other fields. And, for example, one of the things we learned is that, like, we could have, like, a better sense of, like, upfront planning and, like, requirement planning and stuff. Well, a couple of things that we can teach other fields are things that are unique to software, not seen in any other like branch of engineering. The two big ones being that we are a lot more open. One person actually contacted me like a long time after the thing that because he used to work as an engineer before moving to software, and he said like, yeah, in order to sort of get like information on this one circuit, this one integrated circuit we're using, we had to go to the vendor's trade show and talk to them directly to get this information. Oh wow! Whereas in like software, it's just like, oh yeah, the code's online, the documentation's online. You can look at the code. You can look at all the blog posts about the code. You can go to a conference and just go into a hallway track and talk with people. We are so much more open than every other field in engineering. And the other big thing that like we can contribute back is version control, which is the most revolutionary thing software has developed. And people are like, yeah, but like other fields have change management or like change processes. And it's like, no, it is nothing close to how powerful version control is in software. 
Right. <laughs> right. Yeah. You can just roll back to like anything at any point in time. Like there's a whole process for combining things together that were worked on by disparate people and disparate machines. And yeah. Being able to say who was the person who was writing the commit that introduced this bug two years ago. Right. Oh, yeah. get bisect done. <laughs> well, that one, I already know the answer is me. So I, I don't necessarily need to, but yeah. Right, well, where's the context you were doing it in? There you go, yes. <laughs> what were you fixing? Like? <laughs> right. You mentioned physical constraints. That one's interesting to me. So I've gotten really into guitar in the last couple of years. And one of the things that I learned is that there's this thing called parts tolerances in like electrical equipment, at least for guitar stuff. And the upshot of this is that if you buy two different guitar pedals and they look identical, but you set the knobs to be the same on both of them, they're probably going to sound a little bit different or maybe a lot different depending on roll the dice. And what's interesting about this is that a lot of people will do like on YouTube, they'll do like gear comparison videos and they'll be like, oh, here's this one versus this one side by sides. Here, here how they sound. And they'll be like, well, I'll set them both to the same setting on the knob and therefore that's about the same. And for a variety of reasons, one of which is part tolerances, it actually is not telling you necessarily anything. It might just be like, well, you just don't have them calibrated right. Or another physical phenomenon, apparently humans tend to perceive things that sound louder as sounding better up to a point. Obviously, at some point it becomes painful. But below that point, if you have something that sounds really quiet and something else that sounds pretty similar but significantly louder, it just like sounds better to us as humans. And so we kind of like go for it. And this is apparently a trick that it's a famous trick of audio sales engineers is they'll show you one model and then they'll show you another model with the volume dialed up just a little bit higher and it's just going to sound better even if you take it home and if you fiddle with them to get them to sound the same volume you know they would sound about the same but all these things are interesting to me because i can't really think of an analog in software to something like parts tolerances other than nines of availability where we're like you know what that's okay we're not going to have 100 percent uptime but like in every other aspect, we generally try to aim for like 100% or as close to it as we can get, aside from maybe being okay with a certain amount of bugs. Mm -hmm. I think it's somewhat interesting also in like traditional engineering. And also keep on talking, I did not have any training in traditional engineering. I'm talking primarily as like a journalist here. It's not just sort of like in the end products, but also sort of in the intermediate products. Like resistors, every resistor band has a tolerance band on it, which tells you it's got a mark resistance, say like 10,000 ohms, and then it has a, a tolerance band that says it's actually going to be somewhere between 9,500 and 10,500 ohms. Like resistors comes up all the time in guitars. Yeah, at room temperature. So that means that like everybody who's like building these things has to basically work around the fact that every single resistor is going to have different characteristics from every other one in the same batch, and they're all going to vary with temperature differently. That's another one that comes out. Apparently, germanium sounds like significantly different depending on a lot of like old fuzzes and I guess modern things do too. So like if you take the same piece of equipment and you do 10 gigs in a row indoors and then you take it outside once, it might sound totally different and bad, <laughs> especially like depending on how hot it is outdoors. This is apparently like a famous problem with the uh, germanium fuzz faces and stuff like that. In 1920, the Nobel Prize in Physics was awarded to this guy who developed this material called INVAR, which is, a, I believe, a nickel-iron alloy. And the entire reason why he won this Nobel Prize, like the highest award in physics for this thing, is that it's just this metal alloy that doesn't expand very much when you heat it. <laughs> cool. <laughs> I wonder about these things in software in part because... So Erlang has this famous slogan of, like, let it crash. And I have not written a line of Erlang or Elixir for that matter 
Okay, I guess I've written a line of Elixir, but that's about it. But I, I'm like sort of familiar with the languages, and something that was interesting to me was what do people mean about this case? And I finally found a good explanation of it in a Joe Armstrong talk, where basically what he's talking about is that they encountered at Ericsson, they were building telephony systems, phone switching systems, and that was what Erlang was originally developed for. And there was a spec for how a certain interaction was supposed to happen. And as he was writing the code to implement it, he realized there was an edge case that wasn't described in the spec. And he was like, what are we supposed to do if this happens? That's not written down what we should do. And somebody he talked to was like, oh, everybody knows you're just supposed to do blah. And he was like, what do you mean everybody knows? Like, Why isn't it written down? And his takeaway from that, I'm paraphrasing, I'll try to remember to link to the talk later. Why don't we just have a catch-all that's just like, if we get into a state where we don't know what to do, we just quote unquote, let it crash, meaning just say, give up and then have something somewhere else describe what to do in the event of a give up event. Now, the way that he describes it, it really sounds an awful lot like try catch. I mean, I know that it's not presented the same way in the language, but fundamentally what he describes as the original motivation for the let it crash philosophy. Another way to say that could be just throw an exception. If you don't know what to do, if you're in a situation where it's not clear what, you know, the spec doesn't tell you what to do and you just want to throw an exception and let somebody else catch it. And what I think is interesting about that is that culturally, I hear a lot of maybe not disparagement might not be the right word, but people don't really generally have a positive view of exceptions or exception handling in my experience. It's kind of like, oh, they're like messy. They're used for control flow and they shouldn't be. And, you know, it's a bad user experience. You should gracefully recover from errors, et cetera. All of which I think are fair criticisms of it. And yet also culturally at the same time, people talk about how great Erlang's fault tolerance is and how they have this let it crash philosophy. And yet they also have all these famous many nines of uptime. And I think about that in the context of physical parts tolerances, things are going to break, you're going to have edge cases you didn't think of, yada, yada. And it just reminds me that a lot of these things are in practice, we all have a certain tolerance for problems and bugs and things not working out the way we expected. And we don't go to 100% an awful lot of the time to try and make everything work together perfectly. We just don't call it that. We have different names for things. And even depending on what we do call it, we have a different impression of how noble it is or isn't. Mm-hmm. Poor Kevin, I've also never programmed Erlang in Elixir, so I really do not feel comfortable like making speculation about like languages I haven't done. My guess, purely based on guess, is that like when Armstrong was talking about Let It Crash, he wasn't sort of talking about logic errors, but sort of transient errors. Like, oh, the server took too long to respond, or the file temporarily doesn't exist. Things that, like, if you try again, might not be there anymore. In which case, Let It Crash makes a lot more sense than every time it just failing. So in that case, it might not map to exceptions like entirely because often exceptions are used when like things are permanently broken. You have to recover from that. That's fair. It's been a while since I watched the talk. I don't remember what the specific example was. Yeah. The other thing I just really want to make is like one of the things I also tend to like spend a lot of time researching is sort of his software urban legends and like urban myths and stuff. And the Erlang like many nines of uptime is actually like interesting because the team that did that has disavowed Joel Armstrong's claims. They say that like he should not be saying this about like our system because they said like yeah Elixir was like a significant part of it but like the majority of the system was written in C plus plus and also part of the reason we got like nine uptimes of like nine nines is because of absolutely Herculean efforts and process on our part to like make sure the system was like robust we can't just really attribute that to just Erlang. Interesting. Yeah. I also don't know the 
the history there, but I, you would know better than I would, being someone who researches history <laughs> more than anyone I know in software. This reminds me of like another one. I don't know if you've looked into this one, but so there's this famous claim that JavaScript was designed in like 10 days or something like that. I have heard that a lot, and it's often used as an explanation for like, oh, JavaScript has this or that design flaw, but it's excusable because it was designed in like 10 days or whatever. But what I've heard is that the actual story is that the first draft was designed in 10 days. And there was like another like six months of like working on it and stuff. Like there was plenty of opportunities to, it wasn't like shipped in 10 days. That was the first draft. And then there was a long multi-month period afterward of development and stuff in which the design ended up where we all know it to have ended up in the initial release. Yeah. Having said that, I have heard this, I can't find a link to substantiate that. So I don't want to oversell it as like, this is definitely something I know for a fact, but I'd be curious to know if there's substantiation or refutation of that out there somewhere. One thing you do is Brendan Dyke's pretty like popular. Like one thing I've found that often like works in historical research is just ask people. Brendan Eich is on Twitter and he's active on Twitter. You could just message him and say, like, hey, is this true? And he'll be able to say, yes, it is or no, it isn't. The other thing I would probably look for is that like, see if that there's like draft proposals that like exist anywhere. That'd be my guess. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah. I do know one fun thing about the history of JavaScript is you know how they're always like, oh, it's supposed to be called LiveScript and they decide to like capitalize Java's like popularity. Uh-huh. Some microsystems was part of that. They were working with Netscape at that time to like, they were part of people who convinced them to like rename to JavaScript, I think. Really? Yeah. Huh. I'm not sure if they actually convinced them. I don't want to say that, but I do know like at the time, like some knew they were doing this and was like, okay with it kind of thing. Yeah. Because I know that famously... Sun spent a huge amount of money on marketing Java specifically. And I remember reading one headline. It was like, I want to say it was 2000 or something like that. I should look that up for sure. But it was something along the lines of Sun Microsystems announces an additional $500 million of funding for marketing Java, which is just a staggering amount of money to spend on marketing a programming language. So it does sound on brand that they would do that for JavaScript and like push for LiveScript to be renamed JavaScript. Mm-hmm. I don't know the full details. So I, everything I'm saying about that is like full speculation. I just know that they were sort of there at the time. Okay. I just Googled it. It was 2003, $500 million marketing campaign specifically to market Java, the programming language, <laughs> which is weird because at that time, Sun was like kind of in decline apparently as a company. But yeah, that's interesting. I totally buy it. There's this whole interesting topic of how programming languages get adopted and how they get popular. And yeah, I guess I I gave a whole talk about this, which has now crossed a million YouTube views, which is cool. (laughs) I'm now in the, what I call the Anjana Vakil Club, (laughs) having given a programming talk with over a million YouTube views. What was the one that she gave that was over a million? Functional programming in JavaScript. It's over 2 million. So she's in a club of her own as usual. The the highest I've gotten is um, 300,000 from my esoteric languages video. Oh, nice. I didn't know that. That's cool. The YouTube algorithm blessed it like in November of last year and suddenly it went from like 2,000 views <laughs> to like 200,000. I'm like, okay. <laughs> wow. Yeah, it's weird how that stuff works. Like, I don't know. So I gave a talk at two different conferences, which is unusual for me because I don't like to repeat talks. I rarely do it. It got picked up on three different places in YouTube though. So one was the talk that I gave at the first conference. The other was the talk that I gave at the second conference. And then there was this coding channel that picked up and copied the video from the second conference where I gave the talk. And what's interesting is that the first conference, the second conference, like the first conference, same talk, right? First conference got like a couple hundred views. Second 
conference got a couple thousand views and the coding channel that picked it up on that place it's got last i checked it was almost a million views let's see i'm gonna look it up as of right now yeah the 993,000 views and I looked at that coding channel and I was like, oh, maybe this is just because they have a ton of subscribers, which they do, but that's also very high for even for one of their videos. Like a lot of their videos are like 10, 20,000 views. And I think that's interesting because it's almost reassuring in the sense that like, if you give a talk and it doesn't get a lot of views, that doesn't mean it was a bad talk. It's in some sense, what channel picks it up and what does the algorithm do with it is a much bigger factor. I happen to think that the first talk, like why isn't functional programming the norm is my favorite talk of mine that I've given, but uh, not by a huge margin. I think I have other talks that are also quite good and that I'm proud of, but that have nowhere near as many views. And it's just instructive to remember that like the view count is not a reflection of quality. Maybe there's a certain minimum quality bar like in order to get that high, but I bet it's pretty low actually. Yeah, it is interesting because I, I'm pretty good at sort of getting like my um, technical writing to go viral in like various online places. And definitely, like, part of it is sort of knowing how to sort of play to what people are interested in. Part of it is just intense amounts of quality and polish. And part of it is just pure luck. Oh, yeah. Luck plays a huge part. (laughs) Yeah. And the purpose of, like, all the quality is to one, well, I guess, fundamentally be proud of what I'm putting out. But more it's that, like, high quality brings the the chances from, like, minuscule to, like, tiny. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Absolutely. I also noticed that it's, In a lot of cases, and this is not YouTube specific, but just like the way that something gets picked up and goes viral often has a lot to do with the headline. Just what is the title? Is it something that a lot of people care about or only a very small number of people care about? Is it controversial or is it uncontroversial? I think the fact that that talk was titled, why isn't functional programming the norm, like carried a huge amount of weight, regardless of what I said, regardless of the content of the talk. Like if I just called it a historical look at the rise of object-oriented programming, I bet it would have gotten like 10 views it's just like and even if it had exactly the same content but having a a title that encourages people to click on it whether or not it's like overt clickbait uh, which i know is also a subject you're interested in it's a a big factor it's a reason that so many publications do it i mean yeah no it's fundamentally like people have only find amount of attention and even if they love your piece they have to like decide to click it somehow and you have to make people think it's worth clicking and part of the reason why for example people like hate that you know like you won't believe what happens next or like things that will blow your mind is because they know that it looks like it's going to be interesting but they know it's going to be completely low quality and like garbage it has the opposite effect of basically think oh yeah they didn't put any effort into this whatsoever (laughs) yep that was kind of maybe the first generation of that but i i wonder how that's going to evolve over time because like i assume low quality content's gonna come out forever like it's not like that was invented after the internet of course that's been around forever but it just it just looks different over time so now we can identify yeah five ways that you blah 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 it's like okay this i don't need to read this this is my life will be fine Mm -hmm. if i don't read this i started to note there is somewhere one of the modern ones it's definitely not the same thing as the five ways to blah 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 but we need to talk about x is often code for here's my opinion about X, but it sounds a lot more urgent and like important. And like, this is an emergency. It's like, that's, it's not really actually an emergency for me to read your opinion about this, but it sounds that way. And yeah, like you said, it's, you know, we have a finite amount of attention. So how do you get people to have lizard brain responses to what the title is so that you click on it is 
to some extent the name of the game or the, the name of a game one of my favorite evil like things to do and i don't think that i do this is to write things that have like incredibly clickbaity titles that are also incredibly accurate to the piece and have <laughs> like the exact opposite of what people expect <laughs> can you think of an example yeah, so like one of the first ones I experimented with this is software formal methods is a lot like flossing, or software correctness is a lot like flossing. And by doing that, you immediately know what the entire piece is going to be about, which uh-huh. is basically, oh yeah, like it's a thing you have to do to like, and it's like important and like you really should do it and stuff. You know, like if a person compares like to floss, yeah, yeah, right. If somebody compares like the flossing, you know it's going to be about like, oh, it's a responsibility and like you need to do it and it's like important. If you're not doing it, you're not being like professional or whatever. Like you can tell, you know, that's what it's going to be about. Right. The actual piece was about how like. A lot of the people who think they're like, oh, software engineers are lazy and don't use like software correctness techniques also don't floss, which is way less effort, but they don't do it because it's fiddly and annoying. And if, if we're basically going to like skip out on flossing because it is fiddly and annoying, why should we like assume that software techniques that are even more fiddly and annoying and difficult to use are going to go widespread? The article actually is about dental hygiene, like in significant part. Yeah, to some extent. It's basically, I mean, like, obviously you're not going to learn that much about dental hygiene, but more like... No, no, right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, but like you actually talk about literally the flossing habits of software engineers comes up in the article. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, but the core point here is that like I'm drawing a completely different, incredibly useful like analogy between software correctness and flossing, but not the one people expect. And then it's sort of fun to like read like comments on like the piece or like read like arguments online. Just people like arguing something that's never like, that's the exact opposite of the article said. And you can just like, you didn't read the article, you just responded to the title. <laughs> And that goes yeah. with like a little bit of glee, which happens all the time, like yeah. especially on like Hacker News and stuff like that. I mean, it's it's really clear when somebody, if you did read the article, it's often very clear that someone yeah. is responding to the title and did not read it. Yeah, which is why I'm doing things where it's like there's like absolutely no room for debate. Like it's very obvious they didn't read it because like if they did read it, they would know that it's like not saying what they're complaining about. One that I that's been stuck in my like mind is for the longest time, but I'm not going to do this because I don't really think I have the skills. Is basically. Five mind-blowing men- benchmarks you won't believe proving Python is faster than C. <laughs> okay. So guess what the article would be about in this case? I've n- the, the Python the snake and like C something else? I don't know. No, come on. It has to be interesting and useful too. <laughs> oh, okay, okay, okay. I have no idea. Well, imagine if like the first benchmark you won't believe that proves that Python is faster than C involves hitting an external endpoint like an API website. I mean, in that case, I would assume it's based on the HTTP implementation, which in Python is probably written in C. Yeah, or more, more considerably, like, it's also like how long the website itself takes to respond. If like the C benchmark, it just happened that the website like took more oh. while to return a thing. So <laughs> sure. that's going like, to give Python. And so you wouldn't believe this benchmark because it is doing things that are basically outside of our control that really heavily change the results you're going to get. And that's why you don't believe that benchmark. Right, so it's a, because it's a poorly designed experiment. Yes. Yeah. Or another one could be like one that involves very careful micro, like it involves like two different implementations of the same algorithm. So you can sort of tell that the C one's going to be more inefficient just by how it's designed theoretical. And then you don't believe that benchmark because it's not a one-to-one mapping. So essentially the entire piece is about like, it's literally about benchmarks you won't believe and why you shouldn't believe them. Right. And why you're correct to not believe them. Yeah. Yes. Nice. Okay. That's, yeah, that's really cool. Yeah. I'm trying to convince some, another person to do that, but he's like, no, no, this is your thing. I'm like, but I don't have any skill in benchmarking. I just like the title. <laughs> right. That's a good idea, though. You should do it. I, I, it's I, your idea I, now. Go for it. I appreciate your vote of confidence in my benchmarking skills, but I think it's misplaced. <laughs> you gave an entire talk on benchmarking rock. Okay. <laughs> That's true, but with the caveat that this is a silly benchmark, which it was. Do you think like anybody's good at benchmarking <laughs> besides like Dan Liu? <laughs> 
Dan Liu. Dan Liu is good at benchmarking. Yeah, but he wouldn't write this article. It's not. It's not his style. (laughs) You know him better than I. I don't know him at all, actually. Okay, so going back to clickbait, here's something that that has bothered me about clickbait headlines is that it feels a little bit like an arms race in the sense that let's say that I have something where I'm like, I'm not writing something low quality. I'm putting a lot of thought and effort into this. I think it's important to say, I think it's valuable for people to hear, read, watch, understand, whatever. But if I just put a bland title out there, nobody's going to see it. I'm going to spend all this time working on it. And, and even if it gets shared a lot, a lot of people will share it and say, wow, this is really great. And a lot of other people will look at what they've shared at the title and be like, eh, that's not, I don't need it. Because we're just so bombarded with stuff. Right. And so what I mean by it's an arms race is that I have the sense that if clickbaity type headlines weren't done by other people, then maybe if I did write the historical rise of object-oriented and people were like, oh, this is a really good talk, you should watch it, then maybe people would click on it anyway. But because that's competing with the YouTube thumbnail is right in between two guys doing like the home alone face with like block lettering, you know, reaction video, these types of things that are just designed to go just bypass all of our critical reasoning skills and just be like, "Uh oh, that guy looks really shocked and surprised. Maybe I'll have a similar reaction to this. Since you're competing with all that, it seems like there's some minimum level of attention grabbingness that you have to have at least in your title if nothing else just in order to seem at all plausibly interesting i mean you have to put effort into like writing or like making the recording itself right you put a lot of love and attention into like the content why shouldn't you be putting love and attention to the title it's a fair point yeah i guess i just feel weird about it because there's something that feels cheap about it it feels like the title (laughs) there's the phrase you shouldn't judge a book by its cover but of course if people didn't judge books by their covers you there wouldn't need to be a phrase because it would just be like well of course everyone already doesn't do that but similarly it would be nice to live in a world where you wouldn't judge a talk by its title but of course people do (laughs) all the time or at least they evaluate they use it as a heuristic for whether or not they should bother watching it or and same thing with any like article that you write and whether people want to read it or consider reading it Mm-hmm. Right, but like, there's a lot of articles out there, and if they're all like introduction to like object-oriented programming, do you just click one at random? <laughs> it's, it's also a good point, yeah. Or do you click the one that like the person put a pun in it because they clearly like have just that little bit more care about the thing that they thought of a pun? Right, right. I mean, similarly, I had a weird feeling about somebody made a logo for one of my Elm projects several years ago, and it was a cool logo, and I liked it, but I actually decided not to use it just because I didn't like the idea of people choosing my library because it had a cool logo instead of because the API was good. And I felt weird trying to like start that arms race. I kind of see that in JavaScript world where like a lot of popular packages and, and libraries and stuff have logos. Maybe that's just like, it's inevitable. You can't, can't do anything about it, but I don't know. I just didn't feel right about being like, Oh yeah, use my thing. Cause that has a cool logo even though I did like the logo. I feel like JavaScript, because it's like so heavily oriented around front end, like it's just got a lot of CSS people who can like make good logos. I mean, Elm's the yeah. same way though. I mean, yeah. it's not for a lack of ability. I think it's just honestly more of a cultural thing than anything mm-hmm. else. But I guess I prefer that cultural thing where people aren't competing on logo quality and are instead competing on API design quality and performance and stuff like that. I mean, so, I mean, like fundamentally, clickbait is about, it's all about extraction of like ad revenue, right? essentially sure. depending on the site. So it's all about sort of extracting the maximum boost for least thing. It is attention arbitrage. <laughs> yeah. And that's why like part of the reason like everybody goes like 
five things you won't believe about Julius Caesar is because it is very easy for the person who's writing that to come up with the title, five things you won't believe about Julius Caesar, because they are putting out huge amounts of volume each day. Like, have you looked at like the, the amount you're paid for doing a content mill? It's like $8 a thousand, like for a 10,000 words or something like that. So like, you have to be putting out like a NaNoWriMo every day to like make a living off of it. So it's all about like turning out as much volume as you can for at least effort. And that's why like all the titles tend to be like very the same or like tend to follow very specific like um, tropes. And that's why I think you can stand out by, because people recognize that pattern. They're like, oh yeah, everybody's just doing the same thing. So you, if you do something that shows that you put some effort and time into it, you didn't put more than like 20 seconds of the title, people do notice that. There's definitely some overlap between like a content mill like that and spam in the sense that what spammers are doing is they're blasting out, you know, this message to millions of people and a very low percentage of people are going to actually open the email and click and convert or like get them whatever they're, they're trying to get out of it, but they don't care because the numbers work out as long as a tiny, but still present number of people do it then it's worth their time and money to do it and similarly yeah, it's, it's not even about like i want to try and convey something interesting or useful to you it's like no it's just like if you put the words in the place at the url with the seo then the dollars come in the end <laughs> i like to think of it as like an ecology almost where like you have say i don't know you've got the flowers the bees pollinate the flowers and they spread the pollen and the bees win and the bees win and the flowers win and now because there's flowers aphids move in they start eating the flowers <laughs> to extract energy from the flowers without having to go through the pollination strategy and then there's like things that steal the honey from like the bees because that's also now like a source of calories and there's parasites on the bees then parasites on the aphids and parasites on the things that eat the honey for the bees and then <laughs> right then there's another creature that moves in and like kills starts eating like the aphids and that like creates another symbiotic with like the plant and it's basically like as soon as you create like a revenue stream out of the internet people are going to try to find ways of like getting dive that everything was for like less effort than like the intended way right and that's why like you get this insane arms race and say advertising and seo and that's also why like having one major search engine is a problem because like google you only adapt to google's like ecology right. it's a monoculture essentially this does get into a, a broader topic of incentives and how humans in any field, in any system, respond to incentives, which is a really complicated topic. But it comes up, I mean, just in all sorts of different ways. The mindset of like, let me create a content farm, it, it reminds me a little bit of, I used to competitively play Magic the Gathering. And in college, I had a, spent a lot of weekends going to tournaments and stuff and had a lot of friends who were into it. And a common thing, there's a significant skill set overlap between magic and poker because they're both about like probabilities and you know board states and bluffing and stuff like that but with more menace like um land starvation <laughs> right so one of the big differences though between magic and poker is there's a lot more money to be made in poker and so i actually knew some people who would play magic for fun and literally play poker as their job they were just trying to make money and because that was the skill set they had and that was just like a good way to do it. And so I literally knew some people who were paying their rent by what they would do is they would go into the most extreme example of this that I heard of, actually, this is a better story, I guess, is there was a guy who would make six figures by working only about four days per month. But what he would do in those four days is he would sit at his computer, he would have, I think it was 32 different online poker games going at once. And all he would do is he would just very quickly be able to recognize what is the slightly positive expected value move to make next. He wasn't trying to win big. He wasn't trying to win the tournament. He was just like, I'm just trying to do well enough that at the end of these four days of grinding through, you know, however many 
probably multiple hundreds of tournaments, he would have enough money from all these tournaments and just making these little positive expected value plays that he would make money off of it. But you got to imagine that there's like some people who are playing this game for fun because it's a game like that's nominally the intended purpose of a game. But because of that, I mean, that's just like, that's the incentive. It's like, if you have this skill set from playing a game that you enjoy more and it transfers to this other thing that you can do to make money, well, then you do it. And I'm sure this there's a similar backstory behind the content farms. It's not like people are with malicious intent. They're like, you know what I want to do is I want to make the ecosystem of the internet worse. That's my goal and like make some money for it. It's more that like whatever combination of skills they have, they're like, this is a way I know of to make money that for whatever reason is more appealing to me than the other ways I could be making money and maybe less money. I think a lot of it is, and this is just speculation. I haven't like done the really deep dive into like the economics of it is that like, I imagine a lot of it's in sort of countries with like a much lower like GDP than the United States. So you need to like extract less money out of the system for it to be worthwhile to you. And because like, it's a lot easier to sort of set up a content farm than like write high quality content. It's easier to sort of get a couple of people to start hammering stuff out. You're basically making a lot less money, but you need a lot less money. So you still make a profit. And then what happens is people like create things to sort of get around that. But like the ways that like companies put a stop to that, it is still cheaper for you to find a way to bypass their way of stopping you. Right. Yeah. As humans, we ignore all these incentive systems at our own peril because <laughs> we will be affected by them, whether we think that's how things ought to work or not. Just a fact of ecology is a fact of nature. Yeah, pretty much. Well, it'll be interesting to see how these things evolve. I mean, I guess we're, I'm old enough to remember the early days of the internet before these incentives existed because there just like wasn't enough internet usage for it to be profitable to do stuff like that. I mean, there was other scams that people would run, of course. Get a lot less telemarketers these days. I actually, well, I don't know what they are, but I definitely get a lot more spam calls than I used to. Yeah, I think it's because voice over IP has gotten a lot cheaper and it's not regulated in the same way that like telemarketers are by the can spam. Do not call list. Yeah. Yeah. I also, as I understand it, that's a US specific thing. Like people in other countries are like, what are you talking about? It's... <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Here in the US, it's definitely a alive and well and annoying. But yeah, it exists because of incentives, I suppose. <laughs> Just different ones. Cool. So an- another topic that we were had previously talked about talking about was empirical studies of software. Like we talked about benchmarks a little bit earlier, but I remember that you gave a an excellent talk at Deconstruct about, well, I don't know, do, do you want to... Deconstruct was the software history talk. I gave a talk at, um, it was, I believe, the one in Ch- Go to Chicago, I think. Okay. About empirical software engineering. The Yacht talk was about software, but the um, Deconstruct talk was about software history. And, like why studying software history is a good idea. But like the empirical engineering talk was like, well, what do we know about the science of software? What have we like empirically studied? And I'm actually like a lot more um, skeptical of the field now than I gave when I gave that talk in like 2018 or 2019, just because like the thing that like I've really changed on is that I think like the main way that we should be studying like software isn't the way that like academics are incentivized. Like we need much more like heavily qualitative studies, like ethnographies and like follow-alongs and case studies there's like a much more heavy focus on sort of doing like controlled studies and like data mining, which are both like much harder to control and give you much weaker signals. Got it. That's interesting. I haven't done much research into those types of things. I mean, I know about the Quorum project, which is really interesting. The programming language where the rule is in order to make any change to the language, you have to run a controlled peer-reviewed study first that demonstrates that the feature is better by some metric than, than the language was before. Although, I mean, I also note that like 
<laughs> if you look at Quorum, you're like, this started out as Java, didn't it? <laughs> it's, it's, it's very obvious. It's very heavily influenced. Something that's interesting to me about empirical software studies, especially around software usability like that, is a weird intuition that I have that I don't know of any study that demonstrates it, but that I can sort of reason through and which makes me want someone to study it while simultaneously understanding how it'd be really hard to study. So I get why people don't do it. But there's a common meme that people say, it kind of doesn't matter what programming language you use. You're going to get about the same productivity. All languages have pros and cons, but in the grand scheme of things, they're just not that impactful. Obviously, I don't agree with this, but I don't have any data to demonstrate why that. I just like feel that from the different languages I've used. I mean, it's trivially easy to prove. We don't write web apps in assembly. Done. Right. So it's easy to disprove, right? Yeah. yeah, exactly. Yeah. So clearly there's a difference between assembly and even C, which whose nickname is portable assembly. Yeah. And yet, but I don't even know of a study demonstrating that, right? And I guess part of the reason for that is like, well, it's probably pretty hard to put together a study that convincingly says that in the general case, you can say like for this particular problem, which was undergrads spending two hours solving a problem that they just heard about, you know, two hours ago, which is like, how applicable is that to any real software engineering project? Not very. <laughs> I mean, but I mean, even at that lowest level, we don't have any demonstration of that. So when somebody says that, you know, they're like, oh, it doesn't really matter what language you use. I kind of think that's code for two things. One is what they mean is among the most popular mainstream languages, there's not that much of a difference between them, which I think is true to some extent, but I think I would put C and C++ in a different category as the garbage collected languages when it comes to that. But in general, like, okay, I, I buy that there's probably not a huge difference in productivity between like Java and C sharp, at least at a language level. Maybe tooling is a different story, but then you also have people who say things like Lisp is, I'm way more productive in Lisp than I, I ever was in Java, or I'm way more productive in Python or, you know, Elm or whatever. I mean, what do you think about that? Another reason why it's hard to study is because productivity is also really well-defined. I know people who are like, why do people write scientific software in Python? I'm like, isn't it so much easier to use Haskell? And it's like, well, is there like pandas for Haskell kind of thing? Sure. Yeah. yeah. And then there's also like different goals that people have. I do know of one experiment in this that was trying to be a clinical study where they ended up just getting like they end up doing like six or seven different contracts with people. But otherwise, things are affected so much by, say, domain and personal skill level and by team composition, because obviously like, a different team is going to have different results. And also by just like individual spugness of the person. I'm not sure, like, sometimes the people who are like, all languages are the same, all the same productivity are, very, are the smug people. And sometimes it's the, no, languages are different are the smug people. And so I basically have whichever opinion is not the smug opinion at the time. <laughs> I am basically defined entirely on, like, whoever's the most smug in the room, I'm the op- I try to be like, the opposite opinion. And that just defines my entire career. It's a pretty healthy way to be, honestly. Like, you know how, like, I often, like, argue in, like, on, like, line that, like, yeah, there's not really a clear sign that, like, static types are, like, super better for, like, error than, like, dynamic types? Uh-huh. A while back, I worked in language, like in like, in, like a um, job that like only used dynamic type things. Like we just had a single type system, this would be so much easier. <laughs> so, basically, whatever the opposite of everybody else is doing, I'm like, yeah, yeah, let's do the other thing. Um, but in any case, this is where I think, say, ethnography becomes really, really valuable and important, or say, grounded theory studies. I think that's what they're called. Where imagine we do the following: we just take two languages, say, I don't know, Java or Python, and APL or mumps or something. And we just 
have projects with each of them that sort of probably in the same field, like, I don't know, telecommunications or like game dev or whatever. And then we just have a researcher following along with like people and just like writing down what they're doing and like how they're like analyzing code. And then just like try to like see like, do people who use Python for like, we, as we said, we studied like 20 people who's like, who like basically writing code in Python. Do, are they doing different things to their code than the people who are sort of writing in Rust? Are they frustrated at different things? Are they stumbling over different things? And the key thing is not to do this as like a data collection thing where you're just mining like existing projects, but just having like a human in the loop of just like a researcher sitting there and like going, here's what I noticed, here's what I didn't notice. And what that does is it might not give us like, it probably won't give us conclusive answers, but it'll give us a much better like place to ask questions. We'll be able to see like, oh, hey, the Python people are doing this, the Rust people are doing that. Does that specific thing come from the language? Does that lead to a difference? Why do they do things differently? Is there something here we can study? Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I think something that I've heard about people doing that sort of in the small is like they'll just set up a camera over their own shoulder and just record themselves writing code and then watch it later and just see what they notice. Because yeah, I bet you can make a lot more. It's probably a lot easier to make small claims than big claims about something like that, such as, look, you obviously spent this many seconds staring at the screen on this part of the problem and and the, the equivalent part of the problem in this other environment, you didn't. And we often forget that our own power. And something like, do these, are these languages more productive is a major, major claim that we are at this point equipped to like answer. So we need to start doing more work in the small to sort of figure out where we can be. Now, I also want to sort of make the, the counterclaim that I think like people go the opposite and they're like, yeah, there's absolutely no value to like empirical studies in software. We move too fast. I got into this like argument like a while back. This person is like, yeah, all the stuff that software and like that software research are talking about, like I knew like over beers 20 years ago. And I'm just like, are you kidding me? Did you know? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's, I mean, it's very easy to be overconfident with like our own assessments of how correct things are. Yeah, and a couple of ones that come to mind a lot is that like that like I think about a lot is just that like sleep deprivation is like a really big deal. And like we said in a lot of studies that just like if you're sleep deprived, you're so much worse at programming without realizing it. And then like another thing that like comes up a lot is like actually this has come up a lot, but like one study I remember that like really stuck with me was just this person who like stuck with a group doing sprint retrospectives at an agile team for like three years. <laughs> and they're just like, you know, they were very often like raise an issue that they had with their work process without realizing they've raised it before. And they'd say like, yeah, we're going to fix this. And they just never go back to like trying to fix it. And then like two weeks later, they would raise it again without realizing they've raised it before and then say like, yeah, we've got to fix it and just never bother. It's like, yeah, so maybe like agile people should like, people doing sprint should like take minutes or something. <laughs> yeah. and But that's a good example of like, even just recording it and watching the recording later can let you realize things like that. Although I guess both of those are important, right? It would also be pretty easy to just hit the record button and just have this enormous archive of things you never review and never try to learn from. Yeah, that's why you take minutes during like the meeting itself. Very, very handy. Makes sense. Cool. So why don't we wrap up? Where can people find you if they want to learn things about you or like hear from you on other platforms or what you do professionally, stuff like that? What do I do professionally? I thought you, you tell me. <laughs> I, I mentioned it once before so that I've passed my quota for talking about it. <laughs> okay. But anyway, you can find me on hillelwayne.com. I believe you'll put a link in the um, show notes. Yep. I'm on Twitter at hillelogram. You'll put a link in the show notes. And I also have a newsletter where I um, am with the updating. That's at buttondown.email slash hillelwayne, I believe. Yeah, buttondown.email slash hillelwayne. 
I'm currently on a hiatus from like writing for a website because like I have to do this big documentation project I talked about, but I'm still updating the newsletter weekly. Let me see some examples of some of the last stuff that I talked about because it has to be very, very like eclectic as you can probably tell from like this talk. So like some of the more recent pieces was a book review, why regicus are actually like really awesome. You should use more regicus while programming, trying to pin down the differences in sort of software or like programming versus engineering where I settled on one of the major differences being like how we treat software artifacts as like a discipline of study in and of itself. Programmers who are like, say like artists or like scientists don't care about like things like version control or like auditing or safe, like refactoring, because those are like concerns that only matter to the software artifact domain versus the problem domain. And that's the major difference between program engineering, why we fall for conspiracy theories about like technology, ways of doing research that are like help you quickly determine whether a topic you're researching is like, got a lot of red flags or not, probability, formal methods, documentation, stuff like that. Very nice. Cool. All right. Well, folks can check those out if they want to learn more about any of those topics. Hillel, thank you so much for coming on the show. This is a lot of fun and really appreciate you taking the time. Thank you.